Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. But if you're in your 30s and 40s, you're making a long-term plan, the most thing, the things that's the most helpful is the process you went through. What was really important to me? How did I build this plan and what did I build this plan around? This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. This is Jason Watt. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Uh, This episode is going to be good for one uh, life insurance credit in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario. No ANS credits for those in Alberta. Be good for an IAS or Advocates credit. Uh, good for an FP Canada financial planning credit, IROC professional development, and a financial planning credit from MFDA. Uh, in this episode, I'm joined by Chris Enns. Chris is a advice only financial planner. Um, it's kind of funny because I used to listen to Chris on uh, Sandy Martin's old podcast, Because Money, um, years and years ago before I was ever doing my old pod- my own podcast. So pretty cool. I guess Chris is part of the uh, whatever the, the whole funnel of stuff that led me to one day uh, start doing my own podcast. So thanks, Chris, for that. Um, Chris specializes in working with creatives, although you'll hear him identify his niche in here. And I really want you to think about this. Um, I love the idea here of a well-developed niche. And if you look at Chris's website as well, which is regstoreasonable.com, it's great. It does, I think, a really nice job of uh, branding him in a way that doesn't have us uh, having I don't know, pictures of people walking down the beach or lighthouses or um, sailing vessels or whatever the case is. So um, yes, well done. Uh, Chris, for the branding, no surprise coming from a professional creative that his website, um, I think, speaks very well of what he actually does. All right. The um, object for today is a ceramic heart. Um, I got this as part of some uh, therapy sessions I did a few years ago, and I was keeping it on my desk. It's, I don't know, nice. I like it. It's kind of can't remember. I carved something in it. I don't recall what that is. But anyways, it's like a little, uh, I don't know, worry or whatever the case is. So a ceramic heart will be the object for today's episode. All right, we're going to roll into the episode. And following, I'm going to have some brief discussion about installment payments for self-employed, which is one of the big um, mystery areas for people uh, who are new to self-employment. I'm here today with Chris Enns. Chris is a advice-only financial planner based in uh, Almont, Ontario, and um, the only former, uh, or I don't know, former active, I'm not sure which it is, Chris, opera singer that I'm aware of in the financial planning community. So can you give, give us a quick intro, Chris, beyond that? Yeah, for sure. I'd say, you know, more former, but, you know, I'm leaving the door open to becoming active at some point. The last gig that I did was in 2020. 2020, I think we did uh, uh, a job in Toronto. I know it was there during the pandemic. It's a wild story that I will not put on recording as far as that, but we were one of the only companies that was doing it. And that was one of the last gigs that I did. So um, yeah, it's, but it's in general, that's my background. My background's all on the art side. I did that for actively and kind of full-time for 10 years and then found my way over to the financial planning space. Like every opera singer does. 
this makes a ton of sense. I, as I think about it, there's probably lots of you out there. So what uh, what caused this uh, transition? What did you come across here where you said, oh, I'd love to be doing financial planning? And then were you working for yourself right from the get-go or was there a transition? Yeah, it's a good question. It's it's I, I really should at this point have a cleaner answer, but it really wasn't it wasn't super clean. So it kind of came first from this questioning, I think, of a lot of people in the creative sphere. I wanted some diversity, not necessarily just financially, but um, just in terms of attention. So there were a couple of things that just weren't quite working. My wife and partner is also an opera singer. We were both working long. Uh, we were doing a lot of long distance. That was not my favorite thing in the world. And I was just also, I'm a person that likes to do multiple things. And so I was looking for something else to kind of do that I could do from the road. And finance became more of a curiosity, honestly. It had not been a strength for growing up. So I am an artist and a person who ignored money as long as I possibly could. Uh, I relate to many of my clients on this front where it's like, it wasn't an area of strength. It was something that I made up a lot of mistakes. And then as I was learning about it, it became a something that became quite empowering for me. And so it really started off slowly. It started off a sense of me starting to write about it back when more and more people had blogs. I guess those are still a thing, but uh, I was doing a lot of writing. And then as questions came at me, I didn't want to give bad advice. And so I wanted to learn more. And that's where I found the CFP route because I thought, if I'm learning anyways, I might as well be learning on some kind of line that led to something. And so I started to study backstage and kind of work through the courses leading to the CFP route. And then once I got my, at the time it was FPSC level one, um, now called QAFP, um, I started to do more coaching. So kind of like some one-on-one -on -one stuff, lots of cash flow work, and then slowly kind of built up from there, kind of in response to um, what people wanted. So I've always been independent. My way into the financial industry, I like to joke is like, uh, Sandy Martin was one of my big influences early on. I, I met her through a random happenstance and she showed me kind of that it was possible. And then I started to do a fair amount of work with para planning for spring plans with her and Julia, which was really formative for me and amazing because one of the hard things about coming into the industry like I did from completely from the outside is where do you get your experience? You know, where do you have the opportunity to have some oversight and have somebody looking at your work so you're not just putting out plans and advice completely blind. And so that's where I found a lot of my um, side. But um, my experience in the financial industry has been <laughs> largely, largely female and all advice only, which is not normally people's pathway into this industry. So it's a, a different kind of path. I'm curious here, you say you got started sort of this uh, research in personal finance. Was it investments first? Or was it like credit and lending or what? Budgeting. It was okay. it was as simple as that, but like cash flow being such a big part of the work that I do right now, because it's one of the first friction points, not just for lots of people, but especially for lots of people in the creative sphere, because income is so variable. It's one of those things that like, I can't think about how could I have money to save or invest or, you know, a credit problem or a debt problem often leads to the same thing. So the, the questions that are first often revolve around cash flow and tax. <laughs> so kind of those two things and gaining some proficiency around both of those things are the thing that kind of gave me some more confidence and kind of helped me into this space and where I started out. I never even thought about the tax thing, but yeah, you have like grants here that have some myriad tax treatments, right? You'd have some uh, international income, I'm assuming. like, And just as yeah. simple as the gray areas of self-employed tax. Like it's, it's really tough, I think, when you're into a space and tax is one of these strange spaces that feels black and white, but has all this gray area. And so when you're coming at it from the outside, you just want a firm answer. And so sometimes you'll get a firm answer that people completely disagree with. And so it's just, it's really, it's easy to get really discombobulated to be like, well, what is true? And you're like, well, sometimes there's a hard fact. Sometimes there's a CRA position. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's just the word reasonable over and over again. So how do you interpret that? How do you think about that? It can be very disorienting, um, especially for, I think, a group of people, which is a lot of people in the creative sector, not everybody. There's a lot of mindsets there that don't see themselves or identify themselves as businesses. They are in the tax side, but that's not what they started. They didn't go out and say, I'm going to be self-employed and be a business owner. And then so all of a sudden, when they have to do that at their taxes, it's it's a huge mind shift. So they have to translate. It's like being in a foreign language a little bit. I mean, like, I want to order my dinner. 
how do I do this so that that person can understand? And it can be stressful and exhausting. And especially when the words feel like they're changing all the time. And so it's one of the main stress points that people getting into this space from the creative sector kind of identify first, tax stress, cash flow stress. I'm actually curious here. I don't know this. Um, What about uh, like GST? Did you have to charge GST as an opera singer? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, uh, It's a Definitely a thing that's kind of, uh, but funnily enough, this is a for the tax nerds among you, there is an exemption that's specifically for musicians. So if you are teaching music, so music lessons are exempt from HST, GST. Um, so there's a bit of a conversation about what's a music lesson. If I'm teaching music history, is that a music lesson? Is there not? But this idea of like a lot of um, musicians will be uh, we'll teach kids, you know, teach kids violin, teach kids piano. So that particular, that in particular is exempt. But in general, the service of being a musician is not. Interesting. Okay. See, I knew there'd be something there. That's awesome, Chris. I love it. <laughs> One of our few shout outs in the tax code. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, I, I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, but the, yeah, GST is a nightmare across the board. So always an asterisk there. So it is. And it's a major point of stress. You'd be surprised. It's one of those like, it's one of those areas I talked to a fair few people that <laughs> actively try to keep their income below 30,000 because they're afraid of charging GST. And I know that I know to a lot of listeners, that's going to feel like, how could you even think about that? And 30,000 isn't very much. But it's just when you start to sow these stresses around here and tax can be such a stressful thing, people are terrified of that kind of jumping over that barrier. Not everybody, but there are some people, there's a lot of stress and misinformation around there. So just even clearing up something like that, how does it work? Is it gross versus net? What do I do when that kind of that passes? Is it okay? What's my responsibility? Like there's a lot of helpful work to be done, even in that fundamental. I can see it. And I, I, it is, it's a hard thing to digest, but I 100% understand why people would, would have that hesitation. Nobody wants to file an extra tax return, right? Like, no, no. And especially when you talk to uh, my favorite list of tax returns is when you're talking to a cross-border artist that got convinced to open up a corporation maybe before they you know needed it. Um, you kind of have the GST corporate filings, cross-border filings, and they're looking at it and being like, wait, what is happening right yeah. now? Yeah. Um, That's can brutal. Get yeah. So now, um, do you have an ideal client? Is there such a thing? I, I think for me, there's definitely clients that I I um, have gravitated towards. I think that that's like, it's kind of an organic process. It's like having somebody that you want to date and then you have to figure out, well, who wants to date me? And then just finding the, the space in between. But largely, I've been able to stick to my niche, um, which is generally people in the creative sector. But I think the niche has surprised me because people that identify as artists or identify with the kind of stress that I've been expressing sometimes have nine to five government jobs, but they don't connect to, they connect more to this uh, kind of general idea or kind of some of the, the emotional mental sides of kind of this artistic creative side. But largely, sole proprietors, one-person businesses, generally in the creative sector that have some kind of variable uh, income kind of side can look different for different people. And um, I think I also really like to be people's first financial planner. I think one of the things that I'm really good at, one of the things I really enjoy is I like explaining the fundamentals to people. I like helping people find kind of their space within this space. I know that many a planner that might be listening is just sick of explaining the difference between an RSP and a TFSA. I totally hear you. Maybe I'll get there. But I don't mind. I really like to help people find their own confidence in that kind of financial landscape and help them figure out, you know, an analogy I use sometimes is like when you go to the gym for the first time and it feels like I need to use every single machine in order to be healthy to just feel like, can we ignore 90% of these? Do this one, this one, this one, and this one, and then go home. So kind of be the person that helps people um, kind of find that initial landscape. Um do you feel like that's an easy thing to communicate? Is that something like, how do you message that out to clients or prospects? You mean prospective clients or the ones yeah. that you already have? Your prospects. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I'm not sure on the first time client basis. I think that it, 
I haven't used that specifically as a marketing side. I think that that kind of gets done by the things that you release being more fundamental, kind of more meeting people kind of around sharing stories of my own financial stress, both now and later. The thing that I think people in the financial industry should be a little bit find opportunities to say, like, the stress doesn't go away. You know, um, I really like just to kind of share a, a forum story because we're both on the FPAC forum and I know that lots of maybe your listeners are as well. I found a thread from a couple of years ago where planners were kind of sharing, and I think you were on this thread, you might have led it, like things they were working on. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to do a bit of like, these are the things that I may be a little embarrassed that I haven't done, or this has been on my list of things to work on, or like, I've been stressed about this. And I think that kind of can create, trying to figure out what the barriers of a high stress, can I do this kind of thing, trying to create a comfort level there. But I think at the end of the day, uh, referrals are such a really nice way. It's, you know, what you're going to trust is somebody who has also been stressed coming up to you and saying, this was actually not as scary as I thought it was. Um, so a lot of my clients come from that. That, that uh, forum came from Aaron Hector. I'm going to give Aaron credit because uh, okay. he, he sort of posed the challenge about whether we had our estate affairs in order. I love and, that. Uh, I'm probably 95%, maybe 98% there now. I'm pretty comfortable with where I'm at. So yeah, pretty good. but I wasn't then. I wasn't then. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's perfect. Now the variable income thing. So you mentioned it two or three times already. And mm. I think this is a big change. You know, I think most financial planning is like stable income, level income, or, you know, maybe a little inflation or whatever, mm. but what changes when I when you have a, a client who is living on you know a variable income and how much do you see that uh, variation? I, I see it a lot. Like I think that variable income is an interesting thing, and I, I you always kind of work with the group that you work with. But I, I imagine that there's a lot of parallels. Like it's not just the creative sector. Lots of businesses, self-employment people have different forms of variable income. Whether that's on the simple side of just like uh, bonuses or salespeople being kind of like the one that gets mentioned the most in more of the conventional training methods, this idea of like a commission-based kind of idea. Um, so first, it's just about figuring out what that looks like, because it looks really different for different people. So when I was in opera, the way opera works, once you kind of get established a little bit, is often they're booking out a year to even five years in advance. The five years in advance are like the people at the top of the operatic world. But even once you're kind of a mid-career artist, you might be booking out a year, a year and a half advance. Have a good sense of what your metrics are. So then the variable income challenges are lump sums. How do I live through kind of like the peaks and the valleys? And how do I get through that kind of thing? That's one type of challenge. Now, on the film side... It's a whole different thing. So I've worked with well-established, you know, um, film actors that, you know, they make 80 to 100K, 120K every year for the last 10 years. But you'll talk to them in January and they'll say, I have no idea where that's coming from. I will audition. I All I know is that I've made that money in the last while, but I don't know if it'll come tomorrow in a week. I don't know if it's going to come in December. So you have a different mentality and a mentality that kind of breeds the people that can live with these ups and downs as well. So there's the one challenge of saying, how do you create stable cash flow? Because on the like day-to-day -day side, how do you kind of go towards creating um, more of a salary-based system or something that just kind of helps them smooth them out and understand what that is? And then you have the challenge of how do you project it? Um, how do you put that into a long-term projection? So there's there's kind of multiple issues that you can attack and 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 different pitfalls that you can look at. Yeah, thanks, Chris. All right, what about balancing against expense? I'm keeping myself on mute for those who are I have COVID right now. I'm coughing a lot, so I'll I'll do that a couple times today. So um, so what about balancing against expenses then? Like, can you? Uh, is there any way to I don't know lumpify expenses or do you run like different bank accounts? What are some of the mechanics here that you can use? Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, starting with the expense side of the coin. It's really hard to know what you're going to make. And, and even if you have a general idea. So for a lot of people, clarifying expenses is a really good place to start. So have a sense of really getting a sense of what do you spend on the personal side? So that can even be a shift from how you might do a traditional budget, which is take your income divided by 12. Look at this kind of like, what do you have to spend? And then kind of a zero based budgeting model which is great and it can work for variable income, but let's put that aside. Expenses, really, really helpful to understand. And then a lot of the systems that I've built has kind of been from a combination of um, a profit first system. Have you ever encountered that book? 
really great way, I think, to handle business kind of finances. Even if you, for a lot of artists, the idea of profit is not a word that is introduced all that well, but even just separating everything into three piles of like tax, business, personal, base that on a percentage system, and then getting people a sense of like, what's the net salary you need to be paying out? And I'm not talking about salary in a corporate sense, but I'm just talking about a logistic transfer from you know a business side to a personal side. With a sole prop, it can just be from a business account, it can be from a separate savings account. We can do lots of different things depending on how comfortable somebody is. But I find a multiple account system is really, really helpful in starting from an expense base. Do you have clients where your primary focus is not expenses, but income? Like where you really are talking about are you generating enough income? Is there, yeah. you know, are you, are you getting bang for your buck? Is that a common conversation? It's a balance, right? So expenses have a floor and I'm not interested in saying like, this is all you can afford to spend because it's so hypocritical sometimes to be like, you can afford to spend $2,200 a month, but your rent is $1,750. So the answer is no, that's not going to work. And you know, that's not going to work, but let's identify the shortfall. I think one thing that really helps with variable income people is to have a target. What it can feel like a lot of the time is that I need to work as much as possible, especially when you're, and that can chase you into higher income brackets as well. But like, it's a residual from, I need to hustle. I need to work every single hour of the day or feel bad about not working when I'm not in order to kind of chase this undefined target. So building specific income goals, monthly, annual, however they like to think about those, breaking those goals down in specific metrics in terms of if you're working hourly, um, uh, what's your day rate on a film? Uh, what's a normal gig for you? So what is that? How is that reasonable? And then going to balance between income and expenses. So it's always a conversation between the two and trying to kind of build those targets that feel reasonable is one of the tools that can be really, really helpful for variable income people. What would uh, the typical financial planner be, I don't know, surprised at in terms of, you already give a couple of good examples here, but in terms of how creatives get paid, what else would you see out there that would be unusual? I just think that it's it's one of those things that, you kind of have to have that conversation the same way you would with a business owner. It's just like understand what that flow is. So yeah, opera versus acting, very, very different. Um, and then you can look at some of the metrics kind of over their lifetime because you can't also assume to kind of add a little bit of complexity when we project this out, that things just go up and to the right. You know, we can add an inflation amount. Um, we have to talk about this in a little bit of a different way. So one is the inflation conversation is actually really, really important for people that set their own rates and their own income targets. Just even mentioning it has to go up every year in order to stay the same. Simple, fundamental. But when you're setting your own prices, as I know so a lot of financial planners are, just to be like, it's got to go up. So just like get into that habit. And then the other thing is just like, talk about what the life cycle is. And this isn't that different than financial planning that we would do to be like, when do you have a kid? When are you looking to kind of like change a job, have a house, but the income conversation has to be a little bit more refined as well. So for example, dancers are a great example of this. A lot of the time with a dancer, sometimes there's a major career shift in their late twenties, early thirties. Um, they can often be making their peak income, depending on the dance type, maybe in their early 20s, just because that's the way that God gave us bodies that uh, you know move the way some dancers move. So what you'll see in dancers sometimes is a major retrain in your early to mid 30s, which is something that you can provide a lot of financial planning around, whether that's using the lifelong learning plan, whether that's saving, whether that's kind of understanding in the same way that we would for somebody that says, I want to take a year or two off when my kids are young, be like, okay. So can you afford not to save in that period? What does that look like? It's not that different. You just can't take it as one of the constants that doesn't change. So you have to just apply the same questions you would to something else to that income side and try to have it make sense to somebody. So that when they see the charts, they can see their life and say, okay, that makes sense. Um, is that helpful? Is that kind of what you were asking? No, about? that's that's it, right? It's uh, you know no easy answers here, but but it's good to see there's those different patterns. So yeah, that's perfect. What about uh, passive income? You must see some royalties, that kind of thing. I do a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's something I see a ton of, and it just might be the kind of artist that I work with. Like two of the ones that kind of come up more often, and you can just have a sense of how they impact variability things. Um, I have seen some royalties working with some musicians. 
but they're always tough. So I've, I've talked to some musicians that don't know when their music gets placed on a show in the States. So all of a sudden a big check will show up and they'll be like, oh, this is amazing. But they're like, oh, wait, where did this go? And so they'll talk to their manager and be like, that depends on relationship. I'm sure there's other musicians that know exactly where that's coming from. But you don't always know exactly what it's going to be. So, you know, an organization, there's an organization in Canada called SOCAN, Society of I opened it up because I always forget what they are. Society of Composers and Author, uh, Authors and music, uh, music Publishers. For some of my clients, they pay quarterly, but you don't know exactly how much they're going to pay. So sometimes you can use a minimum amount because that's been pretty basic for the last you know five years and then kind of go with the overage. But it's hard to know. Another passive income stream, which is really tricky, are commercial residuals. So some actors will do commercials. They'll get paid residuals. But at least the way it feels, there might be a system behind this, the screen, but it's impossible to know when those money, that money is going to come in. So planning with that money, really, really difficult. Oh, sometimes a commercial will go on and you they won't tell you. You just get a check. But you can start to see how this kind of mentality changes the way that you think about things. So I know that sometimes people are frustrated with you know, a client or an artist who's like, you need to like really buckle down and get control of debt or spending or one of these things, but they're living, a film actor is living in a world where they could book a show tomorrow that pays them 120K. It's like a lottery ticket that could get them out of debt in one kind of swoop. That exists within that kind of side of things. And so it, you just have to recognize what that mentality might be. Oh, that commercial could go on tomorrow. It could, they're not wrong. It's just, how do you kind of not try to plan for the most optimistic thing to happen and make sure that those things are real boosts toward what you want to go instead of leaning on them having to happen in order for you to be okay? I had no idea that commercial actors could generate residuals. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, I get the like I don't know, lottery ticket mentality. You've done all this work and it's sort of floating around out there and who knows what shows up, right? That's, that's interesting. Um, then what about uh, folks who must see this happen where people go into the regular workforce, like take a nine to five for some period of time? How do you how do you look at that in their financial plan? Yeah, I think that mainly that's really common for, I think, lots of small business owners, again, like especially when you're a sole prop or like a small business, like looking to diversify income across multiple things. Um, that'll also depend on the different streams and what you prioritize kind of value-wise. So a lot of actors, singers, musicians, as well as possible so that they can take auditions at, at the drop of a hat. Primary nice flexibility. Sometimes what I've seen from people that are more, uh, they do more work like writing and, uh, you know, sculpting, those kind of makers, they might want like a low um, intellectual output kind of work so that they have enough energy to get home and do that work and all those things. I think the most helpful thing you can do as a planner, because it's not your job to career plan or you can be a listening uh, listening post, but you can't, unless you have that specialty yourself, like I don't have the specialty to help people um, generate more income or those kind of things. It's giving them targets. So if you say, this is your base amount, this is what you need to kind of cover monthly things. And like, that's a number you can start to work with. And you can start to kind of guide a little bit to say, okay, so if you took this part-time job that paid you this much, then this is the amount of work that you would have to sell. Or this is the amount of kind of like gigs you need to be put over the top. So you can do a bit of a combination and, and work to incorporate that in this system that we talked about. So maybe... Full-time work is coming directly into their main checking, but uh, part-time self-employed work is coming into their kind of like profit-first side system where they're putting aside tax and things like that. So having a bit of a flow for where does this work go? How does it act? You know, um, how much do I need to kind of fulfill that monthly minimum? I think those are helpful things we can offer when somebody's looking to diversify like that. And then on that note of tax, and you know, we talked about GST already. Um, so you're going to deal with a fair bit of withholding taxes, self-employed remittances on CPP. Does this go back to that profit first model? Do you have like sub accounts for that or what happens there? I think for a lot of people, like you can get as specific as somebody wants to go. I, I am a great fan of, and and uh, <laughs> some of the listeners might, might uh, push back a little bit on this, like good enough is pretty good. So if you have one tax account that you're putting a flat percentage, that's enough to cover all those things. For a lot of people, that's good enough. You can just pay those things out of that pool. And it's just trying to make sure that that pool is big enough. You know, 
you do have to track things like HST and all those things come tax time, but solving that core problem of making sure that money gets cut off the top, put aside is the most important thing. And then you can separate things more specifically towards somebody's needs, depending, you know, what they need as far as quarterly payments or specific and how their brain wants to see it. Some people want to see GST income tax separate every time. Some people don't care. This is the government's money. I'm paying it out to the government. It doesn't matter to them. So I'm not too fussy about that as long as it's want to fix the big things versus trying to make it look, I'm not that interested in teaching people accountant. You know, uh, I think that's one of the troubles of using softwares like Quicken and things like that, which are really great, but you need to learn how to speak bookkeeper in order to do that. And so if nobody uses it, it's not that helpful. So it's better to have just a couple of accounts that you're splitting things into, and at least you have the money for it. I I agree. I mean, there's complexity, and we chatted about this a little bit before we started recording, but uh, complexity is its own problem, right? It And even if it does end up, you know, you're not trying to solve all problems, but if you can get to 80%, that's a huge shift, you know? So just trying to kind of move the needle on the fundamental things, I think is the most important thing. And then adding the details afterwards or, or finding them when they're pain points versus trying to kind of look at somebody and download every bit of knowledge that they need to know about being a small business in their brain on the first day, because the chances that they're going to implement anything is way lower. And that's the point. Success is implementation. Success is not, I've created a plan that I can cover my butt with if anybody ever looks at it. On that note, you must run into people who have uh, you know, gone years without filing a tax return or that kind of thing. Really common. I I, I think it's common. It's common with lots of uh, self-employed folks, uh, but definitely there's a lot of stress around that in the artist space. And so to try to just walk people through, you know, doing some of those things and uh, it's, it's a big stress and it's even harder to reach out when you're like, I've got seven years, um, even harder if you're a cross-border person too. I'm working with a client right now who's just like just dug themselves out of like a, you know, seven years unfiled, both on the Canadian and the US side and like, it's a lot of weight that they're carrying around every day. So no sense in adding any shame or guilt. It's just like, okay, well, what can we do from here? Can I connect you to an accountant? Are you working with somebody? What are the blocks that you're having and trying to kind of really problem solve from there? Yeah, that's a tough one. I find uh, CPP is a big problem with those. The cross-border thing would be complicated. So yeah. yeah. Um, what about lifestyle then? So what lifestyle concerns do you see that sort of show up in the financial plan that would be maybe different or unusual for creatives? I think that this is one of those things where I think that maybe lifestyle, and this is this is this is my own bugaboo, but a little bit, these are business expenses a lot of the time. And so I think that a lot of time from the outside, there's certain things, and this is how it looks for every business. So I wanted every kind of person that's looking at the creative sector a little bit to be like, you look at another business you don't understand, there's expenses that you don't know and you don't understand. And that exists in the creative sector. And because it's entertainment, creative, some of those expenses you may not, you may think are frivolous, but they are more necessary than you think they are. So, you know, for example, and they really vary from artistic discipline to artistic discipline. So for example, like, Travel can be a huge thing for opera specifically. This doesn't work all the time in every audition kind of endeavor, but you have to travel for your audition. So when I was doing a lot of things, it meant auditions were generally held in New York. So you'd have to fly your way out to New York. You'd have to stay there. You'd have to sing. You try to batch auditions, but sometimes there's just one person you're singing for you. So you're in a room for 10 minutes and then you leave. You're a student. You're like in your early mid twenties and you're putting out 500 bucks. Like this is me taking the mega bus, staying at a YMCA. But then of course you're staying in a YMCA. Are you going to sleep well? Your voice is your instrument. Like it gets tricky and um, costs can be really high. A lot of people get a lot of work at the bar after a show. That's just how the industry works a lot of the time. It's not great, but at the same time, there are expenses that come with it. There's a joke around opera singers that they're the only people that live below the poverty line and own a tux. Um, and that's part of it too. Opera being a really good example, ballet as well, anything. But I think that film a lot of the time as well, when you're interacting with a certain income level, there's certain expectations. And so you need to kind of be able to kind of fit in with that. My wife has 30 gowns. Nobody really needs 30 gowns most of the time, but she, the expectation for a female opera singer is that you don't wear the same thing twice very often, which is messed up. But again, a bunch of examples about how there's expenses that come into the mix that are hard to understand from the outside, but whether they're always fully write-offable 
they are necessary things that you need to kind of be looking at in the industry. I mean, I have this mental image in my head, Chris, that, you know, you're an opera singer, you're in New York for your audition. You're not going to McDonald's for dinner, right? You're, you know, sometimes as a student, for sure, you know, but as it changes, it's like, and it's trying to find those ones that like, cause that can creep. So there's not like the difference between the two and it's, it's a tricky balance, but I think the truth is, and this is like where I want to defend the creative sector is that all businesses eat money. You know, they can eat as much money as you want. And so that just looks a little bit different on the creative side than other things. It's the same pitfalls, the things, things you slide into. Where on the tech industry side, we say, oh, it's amazing. But on the creative industry side, we tend to just like, oh, you're all responsible, irresponsible and are terrible with your money. And that's, it's just, it's not the truth. I mean, three or four times this season, I've been to Oilers games, sat in the box, like all that on the business's dime, right? And, you know, that's something that I think, like as a marketing expense in our business, we kind of do that without judgment. I th- you say I'm here to defend. I think that's a good approach, right? Like it's yeah, yeah. So I think I like to say I'm here to defend a little bit. I feel like that's one role that I can play, especially when I get the opportunity to talk to other people in the financial industry. Just because there have been so many stories that I've heard of artists that have been able to sit in front of somebody in the financial industry in general. And just really, not even misunderstood, it's not your job to know everything about everything, but just really talked down upon um, for the choices that they've made without knowing anything about the choices that they've made, just based on occupational class, on whatever's in the bank account. And so I just, I ask for the same level of allowance that you would give any business owner. It's not your job to know everything, but... The creative sector is not only filled with lots of people making very good money and that have assets and you know financial stability, it's very possible, but it's also filled with like really smart experts that just aren't an expert in this. <laughs> they know amazing things, they can do incredible things. And so it's that passionate plea for understanding in this kind of field. Yeah, that's great. And I think, you know, we talk about approaching our clients judgment-free and so forth and it, whether it happens or not always that's another question so now can we delve into some of the challenges you know in the traditional like monday to friday nine to five client who's you know Please. perfectly so mortgage can a can a creative buy a house with a mortgage 100 percent, yes um but here's kind of the the kind of rule of thumb and again same thing with anybody who's making self-employment income, start two years before you want to buy. So like develop a good relationship with a mortgage broker, get in touch with them. What do my numbers need to be? Because one of the big thing is you're, that you've been told your whole life deduct as much as possible and then your income can be way too low. So balancing those two things are really important. So don't go the year you want to buy. Generally, lenders are looking for two years, but again, talk to a mortgage broker because those things are shifting all the time and it's going to depend on lenders and all of that. So at least two years before so that you can have time to get your numbers in shape. But yes, you can definitely buy. If they give you, look at you like you're cross-eyed and say self-employed people can't buy, buy, um, buy a home, go find another mortgage broker. Go find a different bank because they're wrong and um, they're, yeah, they're just wrong. <laughs> Maybe you can't buy a house tomorrow. Maybe that's the answer here. But Totally. Okay. Likely that would be hard depending on your last two years. But it also provides this really interesting opportunity where sometimes if you just had two really good years, you can sometimes qualify for something again, making sure it fits within your overall stability and all these things. But, you know, I have cl- like actors make very different amounts throughout these different years. So trying to pick years that maybe you'll look good with the bank, that'll give you more options. Again, make sure it's affordable in your situation. The point isn't trying to borrow as much as possible, but there are advantages here as well as disadvantages. That's great. Uh, Disability insurance. This one is tough. And honestly, I'm still really learning about it. Artistic um, occupational classes are often deemed uninsurable. Now, I just had a conversation, and and please, I, I shout it. I'm going to use your podcast here. Um, if there are any insurance and underwriter professionals that have more insight here, please reach out to me. I really want to learn more about the nitty gritties of how artists are kind of looked at. But I had a recently a conversation with somebody who talked about how it's very linked to how your income looks. So what they're looking at is this sense of, she used an example of if it's an actor, who's auditioning all the time, the insurable, uh, the insurance company has a hard time to say, are you out of work because of this? And are you 
experiencing maybe symptoms that may look like um, mental health disability or something like that because you're out of work because you can't find work or is it the disability that's causing it? It's really difficult for them to ascertain versus if you have a creative craft that can show more income stability, if you can show contracts for the next year, year and a half, they might look at you differently because they can say, oh, I can see this work. We can determine a little bit better what kind of, uh, how that work could be interrupted, what that might be, and and better kind of have that conversation. So I don't think it's impossible. Um, I got disability insurance, long-term disability insurance when I was an opera singer. Now, the caveat here is that I didn't have to claim it. So you kind of have to go through the entire process to know whether, but I qualified for, and one of the questions they asked me at the time was, he was able to bump me up to a better rate because I was working with symphonies versus um, because he was like that I can make a claim symphonies are associated with wealth. I can make the claim that you're kind of um, uh, in a higher class because of that. Again, if you're insurance people that are shaking your heads, that was what I was told. I was not in the meetings with the underwriter and I was also a younger opera singer at the time, but it's not impossible, but it does have to, I believe be, a more thorough conversation with a broker and it will not be guaranteed for everybody. That's a tough one. I I think there's a lot of tough conversations around disability insurance and that's a, that's a good example. So um, what about, and you've talked about a little bit already, but uh, cross-border stuff, any other cross-border issues that we should have talked about? It, it can get wild. Like uh, opera singers sometimes work in seven different countries in a year. My wife's uh, my wife is is a dual citizen U.S. and Canada, so already her tax binder is you know about this thick. But sometimes, and it depends on the country. If she's working in the U.K. and Italy, there's different rules all the time. Um, your accountant really earns their money on cross border things. On a foundational level, it's Canada. U.S. is kind of the most common one, as we incorporate with uh, we have with Canada all the time. And there's some specific things to watch out for, but they can get a lot bigger. You'll never find a better tax expert than like a Canadian opera singer who works in Germany half the time. The amount of forms that they can spout out to be like, oh, you have to go here and then have to go here. It's it's absolutely incredible. But there's a lot of pitfalls that can kind of fall into place um, uh, for lots of creative classes. So on that uh, cross-border side here, um, what about just like managing currency exchange or moving money back and forth? Yeah, I work with a fair few people on the cash flow side, which is just like, how do you manage? Um, I have a client who is an actor. I have a few clients who are actors that are, they work in the US, they're based in Canada, and they work in the UK. So you've got three countries to kind of deal with. So just on a cash flow basis, let's ignore kind of all the tax implications and things like that. How do you do that? Um, There's a couple of different things. I really like WISE, used to be called TransferWISE as a tool. You can order up, open up a borderless bank account. Um, you can receive money in so many different kinds of currency and they have a, a debit card. So you can actually take out cash from those things in that country. The exchange rate, they don't, they give you the real exchange rate, but then charge a fee, but it's really easy to see on their website what that is. And it's better than most of the options that you'll get out there. Uh, and you can even bucket. So within that, you can have multiple checking accounts. And then if you wanted to keep your tax amount in a separate bucket, but in that currency, you're not earning interest. That's how they're getting their money kind of side of it. But um, it's a way you can kind of create that cash flow system we were talking about before. That can be a good starting point. It's not the best fit for everybody, but I find it's a really, really good tool for borderless banking. I uh, So actually, it's Natasha Knox, also from the FPAC community, who introduced me to WISE, and I found it great. Even... Um, Swift transfers are super easy in WISE. I was shocked at this um, at the first time I had to do a Swift transfer after I became a WISE client compared to the nightmare I had going into a traditional financial institution to do my last Swift transfer. So they're yeah. so far ahead and they're filling such an interesting niche. Um, it's really, really great. And I think you can pair that just on a really practical sense with having a couple of Canadian-based spending methods with no foreign transaction fees. So credit card, um, even something like, um, I'm blanking on the name right, Coho has a prepaid credit card. Their paid version has no foreign transaction fees. So if you're looking to spend everything out of your Canadian side, because one of the one of the big difficulties on the cash flow side with uh, multiple currencies is 
you can't think in multiple currencies. At least most of us can't. Maybe those of you with better math brains than I do can, but like you have to try to filter everything through one currency so that you're comparing it in one idea. Otherwise, it's so easy to lose track. So spending from one kind of place and then filtering income back into that funnel can be a really helpful way to organize yourself so you have a sense of where you're at. You don't have all these pools of money all over the place. That's that's yeah. I'm with you there. If I'm a Canadian, you know, the U.S. to Euro conversion isn't necessarily meaningful to me. I got to do like into Canadian, back to Euro, or whatever, right? So yeah, hundred percent. Um, what else shows up here? What do you see as challenges that, again, maybe traditional financial planning doesn't uh, doesn't see with creatives? It's a good. I think that we've covered a lot of the big ones. Um. Yeah, I, I, I'm I not thinking of anything specific. I think that I alluded to one of the things I was thinking about before, uh, which is debt payoff, but it kind of like fits in a little bit with that lottery ticket mentality that I wanted to flag before with certain kinds of variable income. This idea that like there can be a real temptation just to be like, I'm one job away from paying off all that debt and to be like, okay, very true. And wouldn't that be amazing? But let's try to set up a system so you're like, you're working on it now, and then that's all bonus on the top of it. Um, but we kind of addressed that a little bit. There's nothing that comes to mind immediately. I think that that's that's a, a whole bunch of it that we've kind of touched on. Well, that's a good the the debt thing is a good example, though. I think a lot of people carry debt and sort of treat it like that. That one day somebody's going to show up, but totally. I think here it's I don't want to say more concrete, but they you know they you will know people who have had that happen to, or it happened to you at some time in the past. You know what I'd add to that idea? One of the hardest things I've found with clients in in this kind of savings debt question is when is money extra? When is money available (laughs) to save, invest, pay down debt? It's a hard thing to be like, okay, I just got paid $25,000 this month for a big gig that I was doing. Is this money extra? Is this money that I actually need to get through the next three months? What are the structures and rules around that? So one of the things that like, I think is really set, helpful to set up in a cash flow side is like both a minimum and a maximum amount of cash that you want to hold. Again, these are classic financial planning kind of tenants, but just and a system for when does money get saved? Because it's not as easy as saying, well, let's just save 25% off the top. If you're when you're getting flowing or 20% off the top, when you're getting going, maybe that'll work. But it also maybe doesn't work all the time. Maybe you have to use a Shannon Lee Simmons has a great strategy of using like a savings reservoir. So you have a separate savings account that you you shift that savings to and it just lives there for a while. And then when you kind of feel comfortable moving into the market, you move it from there. But having a middle ground a little bit just to say, how can I build up around kind of where these savings come off? But solving that question of when is money extra, I find is a really important one to help define with a client. That's a good one. Yeah, that's when is money extra? I like that question. That's yeah. Um, so my my final question. You're going to be my first uh, test for this, Chris. So, Ooh. um, so what do you see as the greatest benefit of a financial plan? Ah, it's a good question. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna twist your question a little bit on the first asking. I, I would say that the the greatest benefit is the process you went through to make it. Um. I think this is true for everybody. And I think it's true, especially right now. But for my clients or a lot of people I talk to, everything is so uncertain that the plan that you've made, depending where you are in your life, I think that this is different depending kind of whether you're two years from retirement, there's some more tactile things that you have to do, whether it's a drawdown around RESPs, whether like there's some really tactile things that like then a plan is worth exactly the actionable steps that you've made it. But if you're in your 30s and 40s, you're making a long-term plan, the most thing, the things that's the most helpful is the process you went through. What was really important to me? How did I build this plan and what did I build this plan around? You know, time with my family, uh, stepping back from work as soon as possible, uh, taking only the work that I really enjoy. Like what are those fundamentals? Call them values, goals, whatever they are kind of to the person. How did I figure out what I needed? So where did we look at those expenses and how did we come up with those numbers? What is that $85,000 a year or $40,000 a year? What does that actually mean to me? Um, What are my income goals in order to fulfill this? So for some people, if your income is stable, that's not so much, that's less of a kind of an important thing, but just having a sense of how did we build this and what are the metrics of change? 
So what are the metrics that change for me? Spend less, make more, reduce my fees, take on more risk, those things. And then what are the metrics that change that are outside of my control? Uh, government change. Uh, or not government change, maybe, but government policy change, um, government policy change, uh, investment returns that are outside the scope of what we would expect, um, major catastrophe, those kind of things to have a sense of like, not only this is what I'm going to kind of follow, but how did we get to this conclusion? And I think that's one of the things that we can emphasize more in the kind of value of this process. I know that this is not a new thought, the planning, the planning, the planning, but like, how did we come up with this plan? And if, I think if a client can answer that question when they're leaving the process with you, that's a great deliverable, even though it's a bit of a squishy deliverable. That's good though. I don't think that like, I don't know. I don't think most of the answers to the question are gonna be something fully concrete. So it's not, it's certain yeah. if anybody answers having a 93 page uh, document in my hand, I. You know, I might question their sanity. Um, I actually <laughs> missed one question here that I did want to ask. I know you're a big advocate for advice-only planning, mm. and it's a question I get a lot, uh, Chris, is what advice would you have for somebody who is thinking about an advice-only uh, transition for for their business practice? It's a, such a good question, and I really wish I had a good answer. I just, I do feel that, you know, the way... It, the way that I kind of snuck into this kind of thing was very much I was doing another job and then I was folding in financial planning as I did that. So the weight was not on financial planning to be my primary earner, which was really, really helpful. It's allowed me to stay kind of true to my niche more than I would be able to if I was just depending on it right away, all these things. I think that what I would say on a more general basis is connect with the community. Um, that was so helpful for me. And the advice only community is really incredible. They're all on the FPAC or a big chunk of them are on the FPAC forum. Go to the advice only um, planners uh, website, just to reach out to people. Um, anybody that you think you might, might want to emulate. I have found, you know, that they've been so generous with their time with answering some of these questions. And then as you kind of see the different transition points that people have done, you might be able to kind of find the right way for you to kind of uh, find your space in there. But take advantage of the community because I think it's not huge, um, but I find that it is. it has been very generous to me and that's been a huge um, impact and kind of a source of information just to continue leaning on, still to be able to ask questions that uh, I don't know the answers to or kind of leaning on people's expertise and all those things. So uh, a half answer there. That's great. That's, uh, again, that's that's actionable advice, Chris. That's all. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks very much. You've been, you're a, a wonderful communicator, Chris, I have to say. I really enjoyed talking to you. So thanks so much for that. And for just sharing openly, you, you've been a great uh, help to me. Over the years, uh, folks might know that you helped to contribute to some of the uh, CFP core curriculum textbooks that we use. So thanks for that, Chris. Appreciate it. All right. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much, Jason. All right. Uh, we got to delve into GST there. I learned some things about GST, which is fantastic. And I also really liked Chris's various comments about, you know, here's the kind of career path and financial implications for dancers. Here's what it is for actors. Here's what it is for, you know, this actors who do commercials. Like that was pretty cool. And I think that's the kind of expertise that Chris's clients probably come to expect. Um, I hope that as you develop a niche that you get that same level of expertise. You know, I think it's, uh, it's really nice um, to have that show up. The number for today's episode is four. The number for today's episode is four. Okay, so I had promised here a quick look at installment payments. Who has to pay them? So installment payments, now nothing what that I'm going to say in here applies to Quebec, and nothing I'm going to say here applies to farmers. There are different rules for people with farming income and different rules in Quebec. But if we have a self-employed person who doesn't have farming income, what's going to happen here is unless you take early steps to prevent this, uh, such as moving on to installment payments early, which you can do, you're going to have in the, the first year 
of self-employment, there won't have been any taxes remitted off of your self-employment income. So you'll go the whole year and you'll bring in all that money. And then at the end of the year, you're going to file your tax return or early into the next year, you're going to file your tax return and you're going to have to pay taxes and make CPP remittances. So you're going to have all of that stuff to deal with. So you've got then taxes owing of more than $3,000. That's the trigger. However, CRA is only going to ask for those installment payments as a mandatory amount if you have two years of tax owing of more than $3,000. And it's tax owing in the current year plus one of the two prior years. So if you had self-employment income in 2021 and 2022, and now you're still self-employed in 2023, even if you're not actually, you're going to get this request for installments. Now, the way that this works is CRA is going to estimate what your installment payments are going to be based on what it was in the prior year. They're going to send you that notice. And then you actually have the choice whether to pay this or not. If you don't pay it, then interest starts to accrue, but the interest actually isn't charged until the end of the year. It's pretty complicated how this works. So at the end of the year, CRA looks at this and says, okay, did you actually have to pay installment payments? So did your self-employment income justify what we told you you had to pay? And if you paid enough installment payments, no problem. But if your installment payments were short, then the interest gets applied at that time. There's a somewhat complicated formula for this, but it's basically the amount of installment payments you ought to have paid, and there's interest applied on that, and then subtracted from the amount of installment payments you did, and there's interest applied to that. The difference between those two amounts is your interest. Then, if that amount is effectively more than, well, if that if there is, sorry, a difference there, then there's also penalties on that. So if that amount, that difference is more than $1,000, then there's a penalty as well. On top of that, the calculation of this penalty is fairly complicated, but just to note that there's potentially interest and penalty. So there is good reason to get your installment payments right. I'll include a link to the CRA page, which is actually reasonably clear um, in the uh, notes for today's um, episode. All right. Uh, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, join me again in two weeks. We have a discussion around long-term disability insurance. Uh, this is a group insurance sort of focused conversation. It's not a CGIB Navigator episode. It's not done with uh, Dave Patriarch. Um, but I think everybody listening to it will get some value out of it in terms of having a better understanding of what happens, what's happening today in the uh, long-term disability and larger sort of group benefits, uh, living benefits world. Thanks very much for joining me and enjoy your continued studies. Hi, if you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're gonna sign up here for CE, just subscribe, Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, so I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, you start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on wall certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status 
wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about.